What's the meaning of life? What, what's it for? One of the ways we would try to understand what something's for is to look at where it comes from, what it was designed to do. And we all love a good origin story, right? Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Black Panther, Star Lord. <laughs> Some of those are not for children now. You shouldn't be talking about those. So, so let's, uh, let's hear a reading from uh, the book of origins. We're going to hear the origin story. I've asked my sister to read it for us, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. So hear the word of God. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with the water with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and god saw that it was good god blessed them and said be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day and God said, 
Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every, they will be on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made And it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is a story that, of course, is very familiar to most of us just by being inhabitants of Western civilization. It's a story that is familiar to you whether you're a Christian or not. It's one of the, of course, great stories of our culture. And because it's so widely known, or at least familiar, we don't, many of us, know how very strange it is. It's a very odd story, particularly in the context of ancient Near Eastern literature. This is not a typical creation story. For many of us, it's the only creation myth we know. It's the only creation story we know. But it's very, very different. And it's, uh, t- uh, you know, whole books have been written about this. Tonight, we're just going to lift up a few of the pertinent themes about how God is trying to get certain kinds of things across to us in this highly compressed and poetic narrative. In the beginning, God. What's interesting about that is that in the beginning, God doesn't need a particular name. When Moses is being commissioned by God many, many, many years later to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, he says to God, what name shall I use to identify you among the panoply of Egyptian gods? And God gives him a name, Yahweh. We, talk, we use the older pronunciation Jehovah tonight in the songs. Yahweh is the more typical scholarly name. But Yahweh is this name that God gives himself. I am what I am. But at the beginning of this book, the beginning of the world, there are no other gods from whom this one needs to be picked out. So you can just call him God. You don't need Yahweh to pick him out from the other gods. There's just God. In the beginning, the one and only God there is creates the heaven and the earth. This is a radically secularizing vision. This is, in fact, the vision in Genesis 1 and 2 is actually overly simple. It's as if there's only God 
and this world. Now, actually, we know from later in the very book of Genesis, there are other creatures that aren't named in the first chapter or two. For instance, angels, right, don't appear in this story. So it's trying to make the point that there is one and only one God, and all the rivals to this one God are just creatures of God if they exist at all. For example, two of the great perennial rivals to God would be the sun god and the moon god. Right? Most cultures in the world have made deities out of the two great lights. In this story, they're not even named. It's just big light and little light. Right? There are Hebrew terms for sun and moon, but they're not used in this story. There's just the greater light, Good, and the lesser like, good. You see, there's nothing spiritual about them. They're, they do a good job, God likes them, but it's just a big light for the day and a little light for night. You don't worship those, that's the point. You don't worship those. And the power of God to create the world is almost unimaginable, and so the story gives us a powerful picture of just how powerful this God is. When the gods of Babylon create the world, they have to go to war with each other, and they hack each other up, and pieces of them become mountains, and pieces of them become islands, and, and parts of them become rivers, and so on. And that's typical of tribal religions around the world. This sense of conflict and destruction and, and, and creativity, and all of this stuff happens as the gods go at each other, and out come the various physical features of the world. And it's all very exciting, especially compared to this boring story. God here is so dull, it's as if he can't be bothered getting out of his chair. I had a moment like this myself, flying down to see you, sitting in my chair in the plane. A nice lady from Air Canada came along, and she said, can I offer you a drink, sir? And I said, let there be Diet Coke. <laughs> And behold, there was Diet Coke. <laughs> I couldn't have done less to feed myself. I'm not a telepath, so I couldn't say Diet Coke. I had to actually form the words in such a way as she could understand. But I, it was the least possible thing I could do, right? Is sit in my chair and say Diet Coke. And behold, there was Diet Coke. Not just any old Coke, Diet Coke. Which is why in chapter 1, there's so much repetition. You notice that? I mean, our, our poor reader had to read the same thing twice a lot. Did you notice that? That's not just because the Hebrews couldn't think of a shorter way of saying it. Right? It's because this is what God specified, and this is exactly what he got. And this is what God specified, and this is exactly what he got. And the parallelism here, it's just typical of Hebrew poetry generally, but here it's meant to reinforce, and God specced this, and this is what he got. Because when God says something, it happens. He couldn't have exercised himself less than by saying, you know, other ideas, we need some light around here. Lights, and there was light. And I have a couple of other ideas. How about this? How about that? And God creates the world, and it was so. So it's a very powerful story in these details. And God creates the world, this harmonious this world, 
And you'll notice that by the time we get to day three or so, God looks at what he's made, and it is good. Now, God doesn't look at what he's made and pronounces it good. He looks at what he's made and recognizes that it is good. This isn't a four-year-old who does some finger painting and comes up to you and says, isn't this really good? I think it's really good. Now, if you're a person of integrity, you say, that's crap. <laughs> the composition's all over the place. The colors aren't balancing each other well. No way to frame this. Go back and do it again. This is how we raised our kids. They don't speak to us anymore, but they're better for it. I rush to say that I'm joking. Right. Right, the kid can produce anything, and if you love the little kid, yeah, that's great, good for you. Here, you know, have a, have a lollipop or some nutritious treat. God doesn't simply create something and then say arbitrarily it's good. He actually has made a good world. It is intrinsically good. And God recognizes and says it's good. That is not the opinion of the world when we spin the globe and we arrive in India. Right? Indian religions, as a rule, do not see the world as a good place. The world is a difficult place. The world is a place of suffering. The world is a place of illusion and delusion from which we need to free ourselves. And we can do it by several of the margas of Hinduism. We can do it by several of the varieties of Buddhism. We can do it by Sikhism. We can do it by Jainism. But what they have in common, these very different religions, is we need to get out of here. And Christianity, and in its Israelite heritage, says, no, no, this is our home. This is a good place. This is a good place. God made it, and even God looks at it and says, it's good. God then, over these first 20-some verses of the Bible, is showing us, very first page of the Bible, what he is and what he's like. And it's interesting that there's really only one thing that God's doing for those first 20-some verses. Right? He's creating. Right? He's, he's creating. He's not exercising moral judgment. He's not being loving to anybody in particular. To do, he is creating a good world. Now, we're going to take a moment to do a little bit of uh, theological brush clearing here. Abroad in the land today is the theological error that God is love, period. Abroad in the land today is the idea that you can sum up everything about God by saying God is love. Which, if it were true, means that God is awfully wordy. Because if you could reduce God to a bumper sticker, why did he devote himself to 66 books of a very big Bible? Indeed, even the very book of the New Testament, 1 John, that says God is love, also says God is light. Oh, but God's light is really a function of his love. Well, no, it isn't. Which is why 1 John doesn't say that. 1 John says God is light. In him is no darkness at all. As Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. 
right? God's attitude toward what's broken and bad is one of barely constrained patience. And thanks be to God, not everything about God is infinite. Another theological mistake, why don't we tackle two problems for the sake of one, right? Everything about God is infinite. No, it isn't. Thanks be to God, he is not infinitely patient, because if he was infinitely patient, he'd never deal with what's wrong. Right? I'm glad God's patience has an end. In fact, I wish he'd hurry up a bit right? and fix things sooner than he does, don't you? Like, like, come on, Lord Jesus, come on back. So in the meanwhile, I'm glad God isn't infinitely patient, and I'm glad God is holy, because there's a lot that's wrong that needs putting right. And I want God to be love, but I want him to do it the right way. Right? God is the only non-neurotic perfectionist in the universe. Right? With us, perfectionism kind of a bad thing. With God, that's a good thing. I want God to be perfectionistic. I want him not to settle until everything's put right. And he will. God is holy. God is good. He has an abiding displeasure toward what isn't in good shape, what isn't healthy, what isn't right. But he's not only love and he's not only holiness, God is also, and I think this is an important element to add to this very basic definition of God that we construct as Christians. God is love, God is light, but clearly here in Genesis, God is creative. And see, creativity really can't be analytically reduced to a function of light or love. It really is a third thing, right? You can be holy, but not terribly imaginative. You can be loving, but not terribly imaginative, right? But God is terribly imaginative. God is wonderfully creative. Clearly, if you just stand back and look at the natural world, if you study a little bit of science, if you watch a little bit of the Nature Channel, you realize that God's not just loving toward the world. He's not just morally pure. He loves making stuff. He gets a big kick out of it. I mean, how many kinds of beetles do we need? <laughs> Not that many. We keep exploring places in the world where life shouldn't grow, and we keep finding life, and we keep finding fascinating things. That I mean, have you seen the pictures from National Geographic of these crystals that are the size of tractor trailers that grow in Mexico and in Central America? It's, it's unbelievable, except, you know, there's God doing something cool again. <laughs> and that's the stuff we found, right? Think of our, the little skin of the planet that we've been able to explore, let alone all the cool stuff that's beneath it. And that's one planet out of several. <laughs> <laughs> in the universe. I mean, I'm no scientist, but as I understand it, there are, you know, dozens. <laughs> God is unimaginably creative. And, and, and this, so this is crucial to who God is. And so as we see God portrayed in the very first page of the Bible, God is creative. And when he comes to day six, he creates humankind. And he says, now let's, now let's just stop there for a second. Why did God shift to the plural? There was one God. Sorry, did you want to answer that? I'm getting, I'm getting tired, actually. You want to just take over? That'd be, it's a rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical question. <laughs> but I appreciate your spirit. That's the... It's got moxie. Okay. 
What, why does God shift to the plural? Well, it's actually there's four or five different uh, discussions in the history of theology as to why. It's actually a, a vexed question for exegete, so I don't have the final answer here, but the one that seems currently to be the more scholarly uh, consensus is that there's a sense in which God creates everything else, and then when he comes to humanity, he pauses. There's something special going on. It's almost as if God's talking to himself. Now, Christians have always enjoyed seeing the Trinity here, and maybe that's what you've heard, you see? Let's, ah, three, right? That's plural. So God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're having a little conference. <laughs> and let's, let's see what we think about this. But, but this is the Hebrew Bible, right? There aren't three gods. There, there isn't the Trinity there. And, and, and the Hebrews looked at this for a long time and didn't go, did anybody notice that there's a plural here? No, I... <laughs> The heck you say? No, that's that's no. so. So it can't be that. Even if we kind of go, well, I kind of think it's the Trinity. Yes, the Trinity is certainly involved in the creation. It's it's God, and God's a triune God. We Christians know that. But what's going on here is probably a kind of plural of deliberation. It's as if God is kind of talking to himself the way he is. You know, let's just do this, right? But the point of it is theologically is that something special is about to happen. The narrative goes pretty formulaically until we get to humanity, and then there's this interesting literary pause, this little device. We're not quite sure what it is, but clearly it means something special is going to happen. And God says, let's create. This next thing I'm going to create is going to be created in the image of God. Well, that sounds pretty exciting because nothing else so far has been described that way. I'm going to create something that's going to be God-like. Ooh, interesting. Now, the phrase image of God is what every theologian uses to identify whatever he or she wants to say about the nature of human beings. It gets my personal prize for the most misused term in the theological vocabulary. Everybody who ever wants to say anything about the nature of humanity says, and that's the image of God. And we all go, ooh, especially if he puts it in Latin, imago dei, ooh. <laughs> A dead language, bonus points. <laughs> okay, now I'm in the presence of greatness. Not necessarily. I'm an old-fashioned Bible guy. I'm a simple guy, as you can tell already. You know, simple things, simple people. And I figure, okay, we're getting to verse 26, 27, 28. God says, let's create a creature who's like us. And God has only given us 25 verses so far where he's been doing only one thing. And what's the one thing he's been doing? Create. Well, talking, indeed. But talking so as to create. <laughs> Ask a question, get an answer. That's good. Get two answers. That's right. Talking so as to create. That's right. So... It seems to me, now, now help me out, people, but it seems to me that the most straightforward literary interpretation here is if God has been doing all this creating for 20-some verses and then says, let's make a creature like me, the salient characteristic of the creature will be creativity. Wouldn't it? Not rationality, not laughter and a sense of humor, not self-consciousness, not spirituality, not relationality with God, thank you, Karl Barth, not any of that, no, all those are true about human beings, but they're also true to some extent of other animals as well. You see, by 
getting the image of God wrong, we end up saying, among other things, dumb scientific things. Like human beings are unique because of A. Well, and then we find that we're not. And once again, Christians are embarrassed because of a false conflict between the Bible and science. If we just read the Bible right the first time, we wouldn't look like morons in the biology class. Another victory for the faith, right? Once again, Christians don't look stupid. <laughs> it's a good day. Just Not many of them are. I mean, we don't seem to see art in the biological world, but the bowerbird is an interesting exception to that, so I'm, I'm open to that. But the gods put creativity in the, in the other world as well. Because what gods... I'm going to make this creature creative so that it will do something. And he gives this creature something in particular to do. God creates humanity, male and female. He creates the human beings, and he says to them the three things he's already said to the previous creatures he's made, namely, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Three verbs. Right, he'd already said that to the other creatures. I want you to procreate and spread out. With the humans, he adds another verb, and this is the change in the imperative. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Now, this, this is interesting. This, this verb, subdue, in Hebrew, is a, a fairly harsh verb, actually. We don't want to back away from this. This is the same verb that's used of what an emperor does when he comes to deal with a nation that's rebelling. He subdues it. Right? It's a serious exercise of force. It's the same kind of wor word that would be used with uh, a Mustang that you were trying to break to turn into a domesticated horse. Right? It's, it's serious. Now, that's a very strange thing for God to say about a world that he's created good, right? Didn't he say that? And what does God say at the end of, of the sixth day? God looks at the world and behold, it was not just good, very good, but not perfect. I'm grading your papers, and there will be an exam in a couple days. I grade your papers, and I hand them back to you, and at the top I put, very good. What's the letter grade you're going to get with that? Dream on, kitties. No, no. A minus? Okay, well, maybe B plus. Very good. Because what would we, if it was a solid A, what would you expect to see? Right? At least excellent, right? Probably not perfect. I mean, come on. But uh, always room for improvement. But you expect excellent, right? Or outstanding, right? But if it's very good, it's kind of like, eh, you know, good. You know, very good. Very good. Not, not, not A, but, you know, very good. Right? So this is the world that God's made. It's very good. Because there are words in Hebrew for perfect, and they're not used here. Why not? Because the world isn't perfect. Because perfect in the Hebrew mind and in the New Testament mind means complete and mature. It's not a Greek concept of perfection in some kind of platonic world of slowly different spinning perfect geometrical shapes. It's not that, right? It's not some weirdly different kind of Aryan idea here. The Hebrew idea is of something becoming fully itself, something that's grown up 
to actualize its potential. That's what perfect or complete or mature, that's all the same, means. And that's what the world isn't. It's new, it's young, and it's wild. Lots of potential. But God says, I want you to have dominion over it. I want you to subdue it. I want you to turn it into what it can be and isn't yet. See, the world is not perfect. It's created very good. You see, in a, my, my, my wife and I moved to a, a new home about 10 years ago. And for one brief shining moment in my academic career, I had a little bit of money. And we decided that we would blow it as quickly as possible. Because <laughs> we knew it would never come again, and it hasn't. So in, in, a, in a, an orgy of, of consumerism, we bought a nice living room set. Some people know how to party, <laughs> you know. A couch and a chair that matched, right? A couple of lamps that we actually wanted to go with them rather than stuff my parents didn't want anymore, right? I know, I know. Feel the dream. And, and, and a carpet that kind of went with everything else. And, and then a couple of throw pillows, because we weren't, we weren't crazy. I mean, completely crazy. And when we had this perfect living room, my five-year-old nephew came over to visit. And you know what we didn't do? We didn't say, here, Jeremy, subdue it. We said, you don't go in there. You come over here, where the toys are, in the soft room. Right? That's where you go. This room is perfect. Don't go in it. And see if the world... That's the end of the story. Don't worry. I mean, some of you... Oh, no. No, no, no. It's fine. Jeremy's only five. I can control him. That's all right. Right? The, the, world, the, the world... If the world was perfect, the best thing we could do is completely leave it alone. And that's what some of my friends on the West Coast, where I live much of the time, think that humanity should do, is leave it, right? The best thing we could do for the planet is exterminate ourselves and no longer leave a footprint. I mean, some of my deep ecology friends, that's what they think. Some of your friends maybe think that too. Humanity has been nothing but a cancer to the world. If we were gone, it would be better. That's not the biblical view. The biblical view is the world is very good, but it is full of creative opportunity. The world is an artist's studio fully outfitted by God. Here's canvas, here's stretchers, right? Here's paints, here's brushes, here's easels. Here, like, go to it. Have dominion, cultivate the world, subdue it, till it and keep it, as we hear from Genesis 2. God plants a garden and he, he put humanity in it to till it and keep it, to, to garden the world. And that doesn't mean that some of the world can't remain wilderness. Wilderness is a great thing. I've hiked wilderness, so have you. It's a great thing. But that would be an intentional thing, right? We're going to keep some of it for wilderness. We're going to keep some of it for farming and keep some of it for other things. That's what God wants us to do is create. The first commandment in the Bible is not to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's not to love your neighbors yourself. Now, to be sure... It is the Hebrew Bible. It's written by Hebrews, for Hebrews, 
who would have known that you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors yourself. They would have learned that in Sabbath school. They would have learned it from their mom and dad. So that's, those great commandments are whirring away in the background. But interestingly, in this story, God foregrounds this first commandment, which is to fill the earth and subdue it. It's interesting this bit about fill the earth, right? I mean, it's... Before he asks us to do it, he, he asks us to have sex, and quite a lot of it. Right? Now, if I had been told in youth group that the first commandment in the Bible was to have sex, I would have shown up to a lot more youth group meetings. Because that is not what my youth group leader said. Nope, no. It was mostly, don't have it, don't have it, don't have it. I mean, it's lovely and beautiful, but it's only for married couples, and even then. <laughs> okay, so. But my youth group leaders were going in a very different direction, right? Oh, no, stop it, stop it, don't. Right? But the first commandment given to human beings is be fruitful, have a kid, multiply, have a lot of kids, fill the earth. That's a lot of kids. <laughs> now, why is God on about this? Because it's the whole planet. He wants us to garden. He needs a lot of gardeners. So fan out and bring the world under cultivation. Garden the world. Be God to the world which is what it means to be made in the image of God. Right? Right? Be God to the world. You see, the idea of having dominion over the world should give us a little bit of a shudder because it sounds like dominate the world, doesn't it? And it sounds like the mistakes we've made by exploiting the world and, and, and just you know, ripping it apart for our own pleasure. No, no, no. Domination is not the right idea. Having dominion comes from the Latin dominus, which is simply the word for Lord. And so what God is saying is, be lords of the world. And when a Hebrew hears somebody say, be Lord, they think of the Lord. Oh, so be toward the rest of the world the way I am toward you. Oh. That's what you mean. Not some selfish pig in a castle who exploits his serfs. That's not the kind of Lord that is meant here. The Lord is the model for lordship. Be God to the world as this God is toward the world. Loving, kind, pure, even self-sacrificial. Indeed, we're made, as God reminds humankind in Genesis 2, of the world, right? Unlike God, we're symbiotic with the world. And as the gardener goes, so goes the garden. And as the garden goes, so goes the gardener, right? We're, we're locked in with the fate of the world. And that's good, because we're made of the world to care for the world. This is agriculture, and eventually it is culture. Because the most handy definition of culture, I think uh, a couple of different people have come up with this. Um, Andy Crouch is one of them. That culture is what we make of the world in both the sense of physically making of it and symbolically interpreting it. It's what we make of the world. God gives us the created world and then he says, make something of it. 
in the creative and kind way in which I make things as well. So what's the world created for and what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to create and to keep being creative in order to produce what the Bible calls shalom. Now, what's that word mean? Peace, right? But, but the English word peace is pretty thin. In fact, it's almost a negative word. Peace is where we don't fight, right? Peace is where we're not making a lot of noise, right? I, I have three boys, and when they would get rambunctious at home, I would just yell at them and say, I want a little shalom and quiet around here, right? And I didn't actually say that. I said other things that were more effective. But shalom is not the absence of conflict and noise. Shalom here is probably best rendered in English flourishing. God wants the world to flourish. And that means each individual element in the world, each person, but also each rock, each tree, each plant, each animal, is fully what it can be. It's a vision of each of us becoming fully ourselves. But also each relationship between each friend, each romantic partner, each family member, each neighbor is optimal. It's working the way it should. No more misunderstanding, no more insecurity, no more one-upsmanship. We, we care for each other the way we should. And then when we form groups to, to do business or to play sports or music or to engage in politics, each of these groups works the way it's supposed to so that, so that hospitals function optimally. And, and businesses function the way they should with good care for their clients and their vendors and their investors and their neighbors. And, and governments function the way they're supposed to, or in this, your case, function at all. <laughs> right? <laughs> not my fault. Uh, not my fault. Okay. Right. <laughs> Several people. What, ha what just happened? What just... Uh, I, was, I was just resting, praying. I was praying and... Uh, And each of these social sectors of government and healthcare and education and business, they interact with each other in a healthy and, and, and useful way. And all of this human activity and all this human interaction is, is in beautiful, harmonious relationship with the created world. And so we're actually doing good to our fellow creatures rather than hurting them. And all of that is, is under a wonderful, warm relationship with God. You see, this global idea of flourishing is what the Bible's about. That's what shalom is. We've just finished the Christmas season. Kind of fun to recall one of the lyrics of one of those great Messiah arias. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, Prince of Shalom. Jesus in the Beatitudes says, Blessed are the shalom makers, for they will be called, what? Children of God. Almost as if it's all one book, you know? <laughs> almost, as if, almost as if Jesus knew the Old Testament. Children of God. And, and this, this calling to make peace, to make shalom, to cultivate the world, this is our human calling. This is what we're made to do, right there in Genesis. This is what we're made to do. And it, we're made to do it at the beginning of the book and right through the Old Testament and right through the New Testament and into the world to come. See, one of, one of the mistakes we can make is to think that the world to come is going to be radically different than the world today. It's not. It's going to be quite different, but it's not radically, completely different. That's a Greek idea, an Indian idea. It's not a Christian idea. 
The world to come is going to be an extension of this world, an improvement of this world. And this is widely misunderstood in the culture at large and even in a lot of our churches. So we better take a couple minutes just to sort this out. Let me just say, in case you, you, you need me to say something interesting for a change, <laughs> that you're not going to heaven. That woke up a couple people. <laughs> I mean, theologians argue about what happens to people who die in the faith between now and the time Jesus comes back. That's the problem of the so-called intermediate state. We can talk about that sometime this weekend if you want to. But what I'm talking about is at that Jesus comes back and makes things right, you're not going to heaven. That's, that's not a Christian concept of going up to heaven. See, we have this idea, many of us do, right, that heaven's going to be something like this, or like the world to come, I die, right? I'm a Christian. I, I die in the faith, and I show up where? At the pearly gates, right? And I don't know what that is. Well, that's a pearly gate. I've never seen a pearly gate in my life, right? But <laughs> I have the feeling it's some kind of Vegas thing, you know? Like there's all rhinestones and it's kind of shimmery and maybe a little tacky, but all right. And I go through that and it's like a giant reception desk. And who's, who's waiting to greet me? St. Peter, right? It's hard to find that in the Bible too. But so we go up to St. Peter. I go up and I say, uh, he said, next. I said, uh, uh, John Stackhouse. And uh, he said, excuse me a second. <laughs> yes, we have a reservation. Oh, good. <laughs> Excellent. He says, uh, if you'll just uh, follow the attendant over here. So I go to this other room. I take off the, the clothes that I came up with. And I'm given this white sexless robe to wear. <laughs> and I move over to station B. And I'm given a harp. <laughs> and then I'm assigned cloud 324F. <laughs> and I start to play. And all around me are people playing harp at me, too. I don't even like harp that much. And I realize I'm going to be here a while. You know the worst thing about this? I can't die. So my non-Christian friend says to me, OK, let me get this straight. I have to give up sleeping with every woman in the world except my wife. Yes, that's true. And I have to give up my binge drinking on the weekend. Yeah, you have to give that up. And I can't go gambling. No, you can't do that. I'm giving up all these goodies. Yeah, fair enough. So that I can go to the world's worst church service forever. <laughs> yeah, don't you want a piece of that? No, no, I don't. No, no, I'm done. I'm not listening to you anymore. Like, that's the payoff? Not interested. Fortunately, that picture is not a true one. It's at least some parts uh, Paradiso, some parts uh, Paradise Lost, some parts Gary Larson, <laughs> Far Side. It's not a biblical picture. Last two chapters of the Bible. And behold, I saw the new Jerusalem come down from heaven to earth. The vector goes in exactly the opposite direction. We're not going up to heaven. Heaven comes down to earth. And you're thinking, that can't be right. I've got to check that. Well, you can. It's the last few chapters of the Bible. It's easy to find because it's the last two chapters of the Bible. I don't want to go too fast. It's been a long day. The, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new city, comes down to earth. And it is a glorious city. You notice what it isn't? It's not the new Eden either. <laughs> 
We're not going back to the garden. We are going forward to cultured earth, not the early garden that God plants. We're going forward to the new Jerusalem, but it is a garden city. It's the best of Eden and the best of the Jerusalem. Because in this city, and the, the few details we have are clearly symbolic. They're, they're wonderfully symbolic, but they suggest this kind of superabundance in the world to come. It's like this world, except everything that's great about this world is kind of like the baseline for the world to come. For instance, there is a river that runs right through the middle of the city. Now, as a Canadian, I have to say, honestly, that's no big deal. Almost all of our cities are on water. Almost all of our cities have a river through them, or they're on a lake, or they're on the ocean. Canada has 30% of the world's fresh water, right? Water is not a problem for Canadians. We've got too much of it sometimes, right? Lots, that's not, but in Texas, you can kind of appreciate that. If you're in Israel, you really appreciate that. A city that has a river that runs through it all season, all year, and on either side of it, the trees bear their fruit all year round. Now, for the ancient world, that's amazing. Because fruit only comes when it is in season, right? And it's perishable before refrigeration. So you only get to enjoy it for a couple of days, then it's gone. And it's the only source of sugar you've got in the ancient world. So it's a big deal. You get fruit all year round. We're spoiled, right? Because you go to Safeway or your Piggly Wiggly or whatever, and you got fruit all over the place, right? All the time. Not always very good, but it's always there. But here, fruit is blooming and fruiting all the time through these trees. And, and the city is described in this, in this wonderful language of, like, not a pearly gate. It's a gate that is made of a single pearl. The pearls are so big that they can use them for gates. Yeah, just, we all know the one in here. Just, you, can, you can bore right through them and drive vehicles through them. That's how big the pearls are in the world to come. That's the symbolism. And they pave the streets with what? With gold, which is, engineering-wise, a dumb idea. <laughs> right? It's a soft metal. Like you make rings of it because you can fashion it. It's a soft metal. It's not like they didn't know that in the ancient world. The point is, it's the gravel of the world to come, gold. Right? We use pearls and gold as construction materials. That's what the next world is like. And there is no darkness because the Lord God is the light. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of like to sleep. <laughs> and, I, and I prefer to sleep in the dark, right? Sleep better in the dark. So what's this about? That's because I'm a modern and I'm reasonably well off. And when I go to sleep, I don't worry about what's in the dark. But in the ancient world, you do, right? Whether it's critters or it's enemies, within the dark is frightening. There's no more darkness. And there's no more sea, which is another strange thing. I live in Vancouver. We love the ocean, right? It's, it's fantastic. But to the ancient Israelites, who are not a sea-going people, the Phoenicians are on the coast, but they aren't. The sea for them, throughout the Old Testament, is the symbol of frightening chaos. When the Mediterranean whips up, it is frightening, especially to people who don't know how to sail, right? It just seems like the world's out of control on the ocean. And so the sea in biblical symbolism is always this place of chaos. And there's no more chaos. God has subdued everything. Everything is the way it should be. That's the symbolism. 
of what's to come. It's like this world, except super-duper better, <laughs> right? And that is what we'll be doing when we go there, is not just going, wow, there'll be a lot of that, but also doing what human beings do, which is to continue to cultivate the world. We get little hints of that. I mean, a lot of us don't think that. A lot of us think that when we go, go, go to the world to come, it's going to be like an everlasting day at the beach, right? You're going to wake up in your heavenly cabana, throw on your heavenly board shorts, you know, <laughs> get kick on your heavenly thongs, you head on down to the beach, grab a little heavenly fruit, <laughs> see if the heavenly surf's up, you know? Cool. Isn't it sad when a middle-aged man tries to be hip? It's sad, isn't it? It is. Sad, sad. It's not going to be like that, right? It's not an endless, you know, sandals vacation. Like, that's not what, what it's about. The Bible talks about us reigning with Christ. Do you ever wonder about that phrase? We're going to, like, reign over who? Like, all the non-Christians are gone, so that only leaves us. And, like, like we, we, we reign over each other in a kind of alternating basis. Uh, kind of king for a day and... And tomorrow you'll be queen, so I better be careful how I reign today, because tomorrow... Like, what does that mean? That language of reigning with Christ, gosh, that sounds an awful lot like having dominion. When we reign with Christ, who, yes, is the Son of God, we never want to forget that, but he's also the Son of Man. Jesus always shows us how to be a human, as well as how to be divine. And we reign with him as the human one, doing the human thing, which is to keep cultivating the world. When we go to heaven, we're not going to be omniscient. We're not going to be completely arrived. We're going to be great versions of ourselves, but we're going to be finite, and we're going to keep learning, except with all the hassles and stress of school, right? Remember how it feels on the first day of a new class and how great that is? And then three months later, you're just trying not to die. <laughs> What happened to the joy? It's gone. It's gone. I'm just trying to fend off failure, right? It's horrible. But those first days, oh, great. The oh, that's interesting. Cool prof. Wonderful students. Yes. But imagine if it was like that all the time. It's going to be more like that, right? What's good about this world in the world to come? This is our permanent vocation. This is what you are called to do most of the time. It's what I'm called to do most of the time, is to come into every situation we're in and creatively improve it. Right? Take what life gives us and then see if we can cultivate it. Can we make this better? If I'm playing basketball, can I help my team play better? Right? If I'm in a musical ensemble, can we do this better? If we're Picking up garbage at the side of the road, can we do this well? Can we do this better? Right? There is always that creative possibility, but in fact, it's, it's stricter than that. There's always the creative imperative, because this is what we're made for, is to make things better. Your calling and my calling is to maximize shalom, is to make the most we can of every moment we have. In anything legitimate, we are to look at how we can make the most difference. Not just in your job, but in your whole life, in everything you do. Resources, opportunities, limitations, God provides all. He calls us to be the best we can be to help the world be the best it can be. And that's a pretty exciting calling worth thinking about and praying over. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for this unimaginable dignity that we've been called to be lords of the world, as you are Lord of all of us. So I pray, give us both the humility and the enthusiasm to do what we can to garden our little bit of the world and make it flourish. In Jesus' name, amen.